Welcome to the All Things Physical Therapy Podcast. This is your host, DPT Steph, your doctor of physical therapy, bringing you all things PT with an interdisciplinary approach so that you can be the best clinician that you want to be. Thank you for tuning in to the All Things Physical Therapy Podcast. This is Stephanie, your doctor of physical therapy, otherwise known as DPT Steph. On this episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Sanjay Junesia, a hematology and oncology physician. I'm so excited to have you here today. And to get us started, why don't you give us a little introduction about yourself? Yeah, so I'm a, like you said, medical oncologist and hematologist down in uh, southern Louisiana. My wife and I both actually specialized in the same three things um, with internal medicine prior to our fellowships and do that together in practice and um, and yeah just really big on education and kind of the interdisciplinary approach with with cancer just because it involves so many things other than just beating the cancer quote unquote you really want to maintain lifestyle and and you know empowerment and all and and expectations I think are a big part of that so that you can really optimize those things so passionate about that. And then that's kind of what I share on my you know, TikTok handle and Instagram is just kind of give more education on the processes and, and kind of just an idea of what's ahead. Because I think people can overcome really anything. I've seen it every day, just like people can overcome anything if they know, you know what they're in for. And it's, it's really humbling. That's awesome. What made you, it's kind of a twofold question, what made you decide to go into medicine and then specifically like oncology, hematology? So I actually wanted to be a middle school teacher for a long time. I had a really good one. Um, and he just kind of made me see the world in a way, you know, just broken down and mechanically and, and, and kind of inspired me to like make sense of things, if that makes sense. And then I got into a pretty bad car accident in high school and I lost my eyesight for like, I mean, weeks really uh and eventually got it back um but i was definitely like legally blind with all the treatments and when people would ask afterward like why weren't you like weren't you so scared that you'd never see again and et cetera, et cetera, i was like you know it's weird but i wasn't and then when i thought why not i realized it's really was because of how much my ophthalmologist taught me along the way about like all right sanjay this is what your pressure is this is why this is concerning for this you know type of glaucoma and this is what your retina wrinkle is doing and and so he just gave me these mini goals and it's kind of what I alluded to on the intro is just that like when you break something down and you know what to expect and what the next goal is, um, it really kind of just keeps you focused. So, so that's what inspired me or made me realize that I could be a teacher while really equipping people with their health, which I think, you know, just a little more important than, than somebody's own health uh, outside of their, you know, relationships and, um, and those things. So and then oncology was because um, I really felt like education is more is in my biased opinion like is more important in that than anything else because because it's so psycho emotionally derailing and there's so much collateral uh, involved other than just quote unquote shrinking the tumor. I mean that's stuff we'll get into. I mean the rehab, the the physical conditioning, the optimizing to make them able to do the things they want to do if you have metastatic and you're buying time, like what's the purpose if there's not these other things you're really optimizing. So I think um, because of that setting, it's just so intimate and sensitive. Um, I felt like the education aspect was really one of the biggest cornerstones in that field. I love that you, that's like one of your big takeaways is the education aspect, because obviously as rehab clinicians, I feel like that's something that we really hone on to because yes, we can biomechanically 
help someone or make them, you know, more successful in functional, achieving functional goals. But the big component, like you said, that psychosocial kind of component component of empowering someone to have them get to the point where they are able to do things mentally as well as physically. And I think that's something that I think in any profession or any field in healthcare is something that could really be truly powerful. What is kind of your day-to-day like? What kind of patients are you seeing? Is it a wide range of ages or diagnoses? Yeah, so it's um, it's obviously predominantly um, older adults because cancer is generally a disease of, of older patients. And by that, I mean the longer you age, the more cell turnover you have, the more mutational error you have, and that just increases your chance. But of course, everyone knows um, you know, younger people that have, have those cancers as well. So I would say I'm exclusively adult. My residency was in internal medicine. I don't have any pediatric training. I don't think I could emotionally handle that actually. But, um, but, uh, so it's mostly, I mean, yeah, anything from twenties, um, you know, I've had plenty of patients pass away in their twenties and thirties to, you know, as high as eighties or even early nineties. What has been one of your perhaps most challenging cases, not necessarily like emotionally taxing, but I mean, just to kind of coordinate whether it's like a plan of care or just maybe there was a lot of medical comorbidities. You mean in a patient in particular or in general? Yeah. Oh man. I'm, <laughs> I mean, there's a bunch right now. There's one where, you know, without giving away too much, basically they've done really well with their head and neck cancer, like a year and a half. It's been under good control. And then there was notice on restaging scans. There was a, a kidney lesion and it just looked different than the head and neck tumor was behaving differently. So I biopsied that. And even though there were metastases to the thyroid and the adrenal, um, it turned out to be a second primary, which is more aggressive than the head and neck. And there's a few treatments that do kind of straddle both, but he already progressed on one that, um, that, that immune therapy that did both. So I couldn't use that. So it's just been challenging. And then there's, there's also brain metastases in this patient, which are stable. We radiated them, but then you don't know if it's from the renal cell, which has a really high, uh, you know, proclivity to go there and head and neck just generally doesn't. So then do I just stop the head and neck treatments on that, which already has lung mets and now focus on the renal cells so that I can treat the brain better? Or do I just radiate the brain and go straight with the head and neck treatment? So it's stuff like that. It's stuff that there's absolutely no guidelines, obviously, because it's not generally like, you know, normal situation. And, and so you have those. I mean, you have a couple of those at any given time. Um, but that's just one, I guess, active example this week. Very interesting to say the least. And I think, you know, um, I know from, so I've only been in uh, practicing as a PT a little over a year at this point. And even though I have, I work in acute care and I had an acute care affiliation in oncology, I think there's such a huge medicine side that we don't, people don't realize like we have the knowledge of. And I like that you're talking about all these little parts because I think my listeners are going to be mostly in the rehab realm but they're actually going to appreciate this kind of conversation because when you look at a patient's chart, whether you're in an outpatient or an acute care type setting, you're going to have most likely all of this past medical history. So it really kind of points out like, yes, they're originally a head and neck patient, but now you have all these other involved body parts and that's kind of things that we have to be aware of as well. 
because we're treating, yes, they're coming in for maybe one type of pain, but there's a whole scope and a whole big picture that we really have to pay attention to. And one of the reasons why I even wanted to have you on was because I've, my experience in an acute care oncology setting kind of brought to light how many different types of cancers, how many different types of patients there are. And most likely, again, no matter the setting, you are going to come across someone who had possibly a history of cancer. And we need to be aware of all the different, whether it's the treatments they had or just the presentations they had because of the treatments or because of the surgeries or interventions that they did have. And I think it's, I just keep saying big picture because we really have to think of the whole patient here. I want to get an understanding too. What do you, what is your, um, not necessarily opinion, but what do you think in your eyes, physical therapists or even occupational therapists do? What is like, what would be your definition of like kind of our profession? I think, I mean, I'm, com- I'm used to having even different subsets of occupational therapy and physical therapy, depending on the circumstance. But I think by far, I mean, if I had to generalize it, they obviously optimize the patient's ability to carry out not only the things necessary in life, but also to do it in a manner that's either less pain- painful, more effective, or, or optimized to kind of help their overall well-being. Now, I, being part, like personally working in academic centers in my, in my 10 years of training and then being in private practice in a community-oriented city, I can tell you that there's a humongous, like, like range of how specialized the PT or an OT can be and how coveted that is. So like, I uh, just want people to know listeners, like you can be exceptional at something to where everyone in town needs you to help with that specific thing. So I have like obviously PTO2 for my head and neck that get radiation and can't swallow well and have really time trouble. And you also need speech pathophonation and swallowing all this stuff. But then this gentleman with the brain radiation, there's a difference between whole brain radiation and depending on where the focal lesion is. So I, in my, where I trained, I would know which physical therapist, like which angle to go, if it's just a neurologic kind of rehab situation or, or if I have somebody with um, METs that radiation didn't totally help on one side of the hip, I need to really optimize the strength of the proximal muscles on the other side so that it's more compensatory. So it's nice to have these little niches with uh, PT and OT again to be able to enable them to, because most patients are metastatic, right? They're mostly stage four that you can now help live for years with almost no disease. Um, so you really, that's where I'm really aggressive with wanting to get that PTOT optimization because what's the point if they can't go hunting? I was talking to a guy last, or this, earlier this week, I'm like, you came in a year ago at 90 pounds and just wanted, you didn't even want to start therapy. You're like, I'm just, it's my time, decorated military guy, 70s. And I'm like, you just went hunting with your grandson last week. And I was like, and you shot something. And I was like, and you're 30 pounds, 40 pounds more, you know? And, he, and I was like, would you have believed it on what you thought, you know, chemo was and this and that. And that was also with great assistance from PTOT and all that stuff to get him there. So it's, to me, that they're, I mean, absolutely instrumental. There's no purpose in what I do if, um, if the ailments are there, which, which no one can fix but you guys. Yeah. And I think you probably summed it up so perfectly and I appreciate that. And thank you for recognizing, you know, what we can do. Um, and that's also like another reason why I wanted to have various health professionals on the podcast, because I think from there's, like you said, there's totally different like specialties or standpoints or things that 
the same profession can help with. I mean, same thing, everyone's an MD, but you can go into so many different types of or specialties. Um, just completely lost my train of thought. We'll get back to that. Uh, but I like also that you said you didn't say anything about like injuries, because I feel like that's a huge misconception is that, oh, do they just send them to PT and OT just because, you know, if you're in pain or if you have an injury, but there is a whole functional goals or just getting back to a quality of life aspect to it, um, which I think is super, super important. Yeah. I mean, uh, I guess that's an interesting point that you just made about myself. I guess I didn't even, it did surprise me when you just said that because I was a big athlete when I was younger, you know, gymnast and soccer and stuff. So I, I had to go to PTs often. Um, it's so weird. I don't know at what point did I just change? I mean, obviously I'm pretty, you know, subspecialized, but that's very interesting. Yeah, you're right. I, I'm at a different place now on how I regard, you know, how foundational that is. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it just shows like kind of, again, it's the patient population you're working in and there is that big, big variety that it's needed, whether it's the neurotype rehab or like you said, with more strength component, if it's like the hip compensatory strategies. Um, I wanted to touch on too, uh, like, whether it's, I know you're more in an office setting now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, do you do a lot of like more outpatient referrals? Do you try to get people into more like an inpatient rehab component? Or if you have any other experience, um, maybe during like residency, I know you said internal medicine residency, but um, if there was just any collaboration while you were in those, like more of a hospital based setting? Yeah, no, I'm definitely still hospital now. Like I admit my patients, my, our practice is connected to the hospital. So every couple of weeks I round on all of our, and we have our own service, the hemo service. So um, I work very closely with the inpatient rehab as well. I, that is one of the biggest frustrations, I guess, uh, or setbacks is I'll have patients. I have another one, um, you know, she's really bad, uh, breast cancer just everywhere and really debilitated from it. And I haven't, sorry, it's not triple negative. It's, it's what's called HER2 positive. So now we have targets on our cancers, which are extremely effective when back we didn't. And you just had general, you know, cytotoxic, quote unquote, poison chemo. So yeah, give somebody that's really worn out that they're going to get sicker. But now when it's targeted, it's like, it kind of sucks up front, but then the disease just melts away and they have so much more strength and nutritional optimization. Once you um, get a control of the tumor with targeted therapy, and in this case, it's her too. So I was stuck. She was really debilitated. It was really late diagnosis, but she's young, like relatively like in her forties and fifties. So I was like, do I put it in patient? I got one dose in as an outpatient. And now the rehab was like really, you know, four to six weeks to even get her to a place where she's even walking right you know and and she was working so full-time a year ago but at the same time i have to get my treatment in and obviously there's humongous setbacks with like we can't do treatments in patient i I could go into insurance a gazillion times but so then it's either delayed treatments yeah i can't i know right and um so yeah that so but i'm very familiar with those settings so for me personally with my cancer patients it's difficult to do the acute um or the longer term inpatient rehabs until I get into a place where I'm on top of the disease, it's metastatic, and I'm ready to to um, to take a break for them um, to do that. But but and I'll tell you, like MDs, unless they're really um, NDOs, unless they really um, delve into it, it's hard for us to know 
I mean, obviously, like y'all are so well trained on that and the assessment on what's needed and stuff. I just see the end product and I'm like, this is great. Can I have this for everybody? And they're like, well, you know, I think outpatient will suffice. I'm like, but, but the other ones did so well. And, you know, so it's just amazing what y'all can do assessment wise um, and everything. What do you think are some considerations that rehab staff can um, look for when they're dealing with either patients who are dealing with active treatments or maybe they're in remission now, just things that we should be more aware of when working with these types of patients? Uh, you said in the inpatient setting? or Whichever setting, any. just in general. I think by far with any cancer patient, like if I had a you know, workflow as a PTOT, it would be number one, is it metastatic or is it curative? And by curative, I mean stage one to three is generally all curative. So that means the treatments are going to end um, and God willing, they're going to be you know, in a remission, hopefully forever. So that's one way of orienting. And then, and knowing too, that their debilitation will probably be improved at least nutritionally or systemically because the systemic treatment will be finite. It'll be over after 12 weeks, uh, generally, depending on the tumor. Um, and then versus stage four, obviously, where you're like, okay, I know this is, there's no, there's no end to treatments, right? So that's, that's the number one, I would think is in metastatic. What is it? What is the, it's called treatment goal is it curative or is it uh disease control and then once if so so once say the stage four is you're like okay they're always getting treatment they're always going to be kind of set back with either fatigue or this that and the other and their ability to they're not going to be golfing but at the same time they want to have a good time with their grandchildren so then in the metastatic setting you want to make sure their adls activities of daily living are really optimized because that's a big uh stratifier on what chemotherapy regimens we can do or subject hate to say it, but it is sometimes like that subject someone to quote unquote, because you hate to do something that's just too much for their, too much of a toll on their quality of life and their uh, autonomy. So um, I would, uh, in the metastatic setting, think that, and then the next step would be, do they have, where are the mets? I think that's very important. Do they have bone mets? And if they do, now you're knowing what to be sensitive to or not. Um, and kind of delineate what the pain is like pancreatic pain is radiating pain even though they swear it's lower back pain it's not because there's any musculoskeletal uh, anomaly there it's because the celiac uh, uh, nerve is conducting really bad lower back pain so you need to know where they are and then in the bones obviously um, obviously for physical therapy reasons and then I think the presence of brain mets are very important so that would be like a, a you know, a 3B or a 3C kind of thing on the workflow. Um, do they have brain mets and are they getting radiation to the brain? Because then you can anticipate, depending on where the radiation is, what deficits are going to come so that you can be ahead of the curve and really optimize and strengthen those things because you know the right side of their, you know, body is going to get weaker down the line. Yeah, I think those are really, really great. Uh, I also want to ask because in, so we're a three-year doctoral profession and even though we have a diagnostic criteria, I guess that when we have a patient walk through our door, we're still taught on, which I, I'm sure you guys are as well, more like yellow flags, red flags of things that are more concerning and knowing when to refer out. That's something that's like more out of our scope. Mm -hmm. So when you see patients who are coming in with newer cancer diagnoses, um, I know we're taught kind of the very minimal basis of like signs and symptoms to look for that could potentially lead to a more unfortunate diagnosis. So what would you kind of recommend? So I know you just kind of said like pancreatic could, you know, radiate and become back pain. 
So what do you think are some quote unquote red flags that we can kind of look for in a clinic if someone comes to us because we have direct access. So they might not have seen a primary physician before us um, when they come in with maybe like night sweats or different types of pains that could be more of like, mm, this doesn't seem like just musculoskeletal, we should really refer out. Oh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so I think systemically, um, or what we talk, you know, constitutionally, I think um, weight loss is a big one. So like my question is always when I'm getting referred to somebody with, you know, lymphocytes or elevator or whatever, um, have you lost weight and was it intentional? And at first they're like, well, I'm not, you know, they're like, yeah, I lost 30 pounds. I'm like, how'd you lose 30 pounds? Well, I've been watching me a little bit and they do some mild modifications and you're like, that's not enough to lose 30 pounds. So unintentional weight loss or a uh, suppression or ablation of the, uh, of the appetite are two very concerning things. Like a human body does not, it should not ever not want to eat. That's a sign of physiologic stress. It's theorized that it's evolutionary. Like if you're in a pack and you're going around and there's, you know, a, an animal that's ailing that has cancer or whatever, these stress hormones shut off your, your um, uh, drive to want to eat or your appetite because it knows you're ailing. And like you're going to reduce nutrients and, and produce from the pack so that they don't get as much while you're sick. So that's why they, the theory is, those that were selected for were the ones that when you do have a problem, your reflex shuts down because then you won't hurt your community basically. Um, so those are two concerning things, unintentional weight loss and, um, and, uh, loss of appetite. And then from there, um, I would say constitution, those are the two biggest ones. I mean, of course, night sweats are with lymphoma specifically, but outside of that, you know, you don't get night sweats with, I guess, solid tumors and some of the more common cancers. And then on the physical part, um, you know, adenopathy is important, lymph nodes. So, I mean, you nailed that if you're, you know, in a rural kind of setting and you're the only PT guy and a lot of people don't get primary care, like a quick just, you know, palpation kind of right uh, by the pec, lateral to the pec and in the axilla. Um, quick i mean you could know if you have uh, lymph nodes there as well as i mean i examine everyone there and on the neck uh, and superclav and, and periricular because those are all lymph nodes that uh, are common sites of metastases um, one very popular one that we worry about i want to say it's jane's or saint mary or one of those is uh is the superclav uh, uh lymph node right in the middle of that little pit um, you'll feel a really hard lymph node. And that's usually a sign of like a, a GI primary. And I've had a couple of those now. But um, but y'all, I mean, especially again, rural where you know they don't have health, you just palpate just smoothly straight from the neck down into things takes 90 seconds and you can definitely find a cancer in somebody. And lymph nodes in general, it's not medical advice, but they're they're very hard. They're not like rubbery, like normal lymph nodes that are reactive. They're hard, hard. Like you feel it and you're like, this is a rock. Um, just as a general rule. So yeah, on, on the physical exam that, and then those constitutional symptoms I mentioned, and then, um, you know, balance is a big one too, like Romberg's, I'm sure you'll talk about that. Like, you know, if they're not feeling their feet, they're having a neuropathy, it could be like myeloma and stuff. And then of course it could be like a spinal compression as you all know better than I do. So, um, things like that. Yeah. All great points. And yeah, I think there's obviously various presentations, various different diagnoses, and there could be a whole book written on different things to look for. But yeah, those are definitely some great key points. And I totally, uh, when I did my acute oncology, I feel I felt a lymphoma and it was, I can agree, totally hard. And I was like, not what I was expecting at all. Right. Um, right. So 
for sure. Very, very interesting. Um, what has changed during we're in a pandemic now, the past eight, almost maybe 10 months at this point, really? Um, what has changed for you as far as working with your patients, having them come in? Or are you seeing late, more late diagnoses, more um, end stage, unfortunately, like, kind of what have you been seeing? Yeah, all of the above. I mean, a lot of stuff. It, it's it's settled down on the cancer part of it. I'm also a hematologist or have a hematology specialty. So a lot of the heme stuff, which was considered elective. So like, you know, high white counts, low white counts, anemia is this not your standard iron deficiency. All of those are pouring in right now um, because they didn't take quite, you know, quite take a priority. And, and a lot of those, not a lot, but not a small number have been now like turned out to be leukemias or lymphomas and stuff like that which in general, I mean, those are treated systemically anyway. The, the big miss is when a solid tumor leaves the primary site, but um, I had a good bit of that, you know, had a good bit of difficulty getting restaging scans um, to not know if the treatment was working or not. So, I mean, yeah, all the stuff that you would kind of logically expect um, have definitely been present. The biggest thing I think emotionally is uh, it's just not – it's so, I think, I mean, everyone's a, a hero that can combat this and, 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 you know, get through day to day, but especially the ones that like don't have family or like the loved ones, you know, their support. I think that's really, really hard, especially if they've had it for a year or whatever. And all of a sudden for a long time there, um, and still, I mean, you can't have a, your family, your whole family in the room anymore. So it's like, at first it was nobody. And now I'm like, I'm like letting one in just, you know, when it's an end of life discussion and stuff that's been really difficult is the lack of, um, you know, family being around and stuff. Or a lot of families are saying not letting their mom, dad, whatever, come to these events, the family stuff. We don't want you to get sick and whatever, but at the same time they're metastatic. So you don't know if there's going to be another Thanksgiving. And so all that gets um, really tricky. And I take that as my responsibility as an oncologist. I'll call the family members and stuff, obviously with permission, to realign, you know, remember what our goal is and what our expectations are. Because patients do really well when there's a remission, and then, but then statistically, eventually, cancer outsmarts the, you know, treatment you're on, and it's easy to forget that. So all, all that's been very tough. Yeah, for sure. And I even think back to, I'm gonna just keep kind of repeating myself at this point, but like the acute oncology rotation that I had, and I was fortunate enough to, at least in my eyes and the family members' eyes, to make an impact on two patients who were more end of life, but the family was there the entire time. And I can't imagine these yeah. patients not having their families by their side. Or like, I know one patient was, he was a young dad and he wanted his eight year old son there all the time. And I can't imagine being like going through this, being stuck in a hospital because you're not strong enough to go home. And then, you know, now add a pandemic and you can't even see people who you like want to see every day. Um, and I think just as clinicians again in various settings we really need to be more mindful of that and pro provide maybe more so emotional support because we can't have someone sitting next to us the entire time who can do so that like knows the patient maybe better than we know them um, right. and I think that's going to be super important to just like really work on building those connections and hearing someone out and being more listeners and just being that shoulder being that hand because you're the only one. That. You're the only yeah. one in the room. Yeah, I mean that's that's the most humbling thing about you know doing what we do and um, y'all us when we see these people when we get to see people routinely and over and over like you really can be uh, the only sometimes you know 
think of strength and, and encouragement and stuff. And I think that's why it's just very humbling. People are like, you know, what made you want to do oncology? And then I'm like, because it's the most humbling thing. It's like every day you're just humbled by the people that you're seeing with courage twice as large as yours and strength and resilience. And you're getting to satisfy and provide something for them that's like intangible. You know, if you're, if you're doing it right, if you care and you're compassionate and I mean, what an honor. Like, how, I mean, like, I don't, that's how, why would you not want to do that, you know? It's yeah, like, it's a privileged position. Agree. Yeah, I just, I feel very, just honored, like, privileged to be able to even be in such an intimate time, you know, in my patient's life and, and to have their trust to do that. I want to also touch on, that just brings another thought to me, um, of one of the patients that I just mentioned, he was more end of life. And what I want to emphasize how quickly things can change. You can speak from the medical standpoint and I'll just touch on the rehab standpoint a little bit. So um, he was a pancreatic cancer patient, came in for some medical complications. I remember evaling him on a Friday. We walked up and down the hall. I was like, oh, he'll go home over the weekend. He's doing great. Come back on Monday, things start going downhill. So from a medical standpoint, wasn't doing so great. Three weeks went by and he was just more and more debilitated and we couldn't get him home on hospice. And I know my biggest takeaway was by his final days, we went from just transferring from the bed to the commode at the bedside. And I, he was just so thankful that we can get him to do that little bit right there and then. But it's like I said, it was only two and a half. I don't even know if it was a definite three weeks. And that's how much it changed so quickly. So from a medical standpoint, what do you think, you know, no matter what the health, health practitioner you are, what do you think is something that we need to kind of be considerate of or mindful of when we deal with patients who are perhaps on a more rapid decline? That's tricky. Um, you, mean from, you mean from any standpoint or from a physical therapy standpoint? For, I guess... Oh, whatever standpoint you want to take, really. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, in a, in a more of a macrocosm kind of principle, it's you just, you, you don't take, you don't want to take anything for granted. And I think that's why um, it's something like being able to give somebody their physical autonomy or independence and stuff. It's, it's just important. And I, and I don't know how much y'all see family members in the room or like at least associate with them, but a lot of times I'll have, you know, I'm mean, an adult daughter, like 40s or 50s or, or son, kind of like saying, don't do that, dad, don't do that, mom, don't let me do it, whatever. And I'm like, you're kind of maybe pulling away some of the things that they're wanting to be able to do while they still can, you know, and that sounds morbid, but the same thing goes for Alzheimer's and dementia, all these other progressive diseases. Um, so to be in a position um, to be able to help them do that, I, I think maybe communicating and asking that is very important. Like, it's easy in an inpatient setting to reflexively want to wipe or like take it off, you know, the, the diaper switch and whatever. But sometimes if you had like, Hey, would you, would you like to do this? Or you're like, you know, I'd be happy to do it. Let me, I want to do it. But if you want to do it, you know, and then you'll be surprised, especially when I, you know, work at the VA hospital, like some veterans want to do that to the very end, you know, like, and, and maybe by even doing these small things for them instead, it's taking their independence away a little early, you know, if you think about it. So um, I think being sensitive again to any metastatic setting, you know, I, I hate the fact that some tangent is like how like, well, it's stage four cancer, so they're going to pass away now one day anyway. So like, why even, you know, 
I hate that because it still applies to everything else, like age in general or Alzheimer's and dementia, or all these other things that are quote unquote, everyone's terminal. I'm terminal. Everyone's terminal. So it's like you live with ailments, period. It doesn't matter if it's a stroke. It doesn't matter if it's whatever. It doesn't mean you should stop like enabling uh, somebody to have their independence and strength and everything and, and care and ask him what do, do they not you know, want on brand. Yeah, that's a great point. I love that. I want to switch gears a little bit on a more lighter, happier kind of note. Let's talk a little bit about how I discovered you, which was through TikTok. So what you touched on this a little bit when we first started chatting, but what prompted you to make the TikTok? What is your goal? How is it going? Yeah, so I know there's no video <laughs> on this, but you can see my smirk, like, or just like, I don't know if it's a smirk, if it's a bashful sm- smile, whatever. But I, I, I think you can tell I have this like weird kind of like whatever with it because, you know, my day-to-day is very, as you, like I said, you can pick up on is very sobering and serious and stuff. And I think that is what maybe precipitated this other side. Um, to be honest, I started only because there was a year. So my wife was finished fellowship uh, a year before me. So she, and we were still in the same state before hours away. So she went down and started practice with both my kids down, our kids down there. Um, so I was by myself for my chief fellow year and I was driving back and down on the weekends. But anyway, the point is it was, it was free time that I didn't have. Uh, while I was there. So I just opened the app. There was some kind of, I don't know, enthralling little musically kind of thing. It was an ad. I didn't even plan on posting at all. And that's what everyone says. But but then I did at some point about something. I really liked the anonymity of it at first because I'm like, nobody knows who I am. It's not like the people that follow me or see my video or anyone that knows me, you know, like when you just join as a user, no one knows you. Like, and that was oddly liberating because you know you us like as professionals you really want to have the trust and um and you know to some degree respect before they get to know you and that usually happens anyway if you're genuine but um you want to preserve that so that this was the first capacity in a, in a social media kind of way to be able to just kind of do my right brain you know and, and some of the some of the stuff was more sophomoric at first and you know just silly antics being what <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying stuff without saying it but anyway so then one was viral and it was like it was just not cool like it was like a little at the end like shirt comes off and it was just so ugh, like just gag it's not on there anymore, anymore so nobody looked for it but uh um and then it took off and then I started like that one went viral and then I started getting a lot of followers and they're like well he's not medical this and that and then then I had this like thing I'm like wow like this is like I've, it's, I don't know if it's Indian philosophy or Eastern Asian or whatever, but like it's balance in the world. So like any too much of anything is, is not healthy. So like I was like having just like attention or like to do having followers in vain just doesn't feel good. Like it's like you're just receiving like, you know, and you're not giving anything. Right. So I was like, I got to balance that out. And I, and I need to use this for something better or bigger than me because that's usually unproductive. Um, and then, so that's when I was like, I started teaching. And at first I started teaching about just kind of like, you know, I saw a lot of what my wife went through was, you know, a blonde, blue eyed, always smiling, always sweet doctor versus me, a male Indian, you know? And so I noticed how differently we were treated, how much easier things were for me. I mean, everything It just was very obvious, the sexism in, in medical, in medicine right now, still rip roaring. If anyone disagrees with me, DM me. Um, <laughs> because i like i mean i'm just so fervent about it so uh so i started with that talking about kind of like that and just you know microaggressive terms about 
especially in healthcare, like man up or, you know, all the stuff I try not to use that because it implies that being a woman is not tough and my boys are strong. I mean, we work out and everything, but they definitely, you know, they know mom is the toughest because toughness anyway. So I can go on forever. But the point <laughs> is that's what I was doing. And then I was like, then I started at some point seeing comments about, you know, all that, all that incorrect stuff about, about cancer and it's just a money grab and all the stuff. I'm like, wow, like there is a big need. Like cancer is only in your life if you know someone with it. And otherwise it's just this completely nebulous enigmatic thing. Um, so I started shifting to education on that. And then more recently I've been kind of on a big like patient empowerment advocacy kick kind of like ask, you know, I hate to say it, but in a lot of places in the country, most places you have to, share responsibility for your care now because either the volume's too high or you know the pressures from dc on how many a doctor has to see in a day and the attention like it's just the healthcare system is far from ideal and what that requires i know the easy reflex is this doctor doesn't care they're not paying enough attention or they just want money but really there's all these other circumstances that come to to make for volume and whatever unmet needs in the community etc to where patients i think like it just and they want to know patients want to know it's different than it was on you know 50 years ago and they want to know about what these values mean and stuff and and you can't you just can't explain that to every patient in a day you you just can't do it and meet the cost of paying all your front staff and all your you know the building fee everything so um anyway i'm sorry i'm rambling but but now my videos are more like hey if you're anemic like maybe ask your doctor about this and like whatever and this is why and check out why the anemia goes this way versus another and all this stuff because then you have the information and it makes the visit that you have now much more uh, resourceful and higher yield because um, you come with questions and obviously your doctor's, your doctor's competent and totally can address them. So that's where I'm at now. I love with it. Humor. A lot of good stuff. Of course, with humor and no more right. shirtless TikToks. <laughs> no, yeah, that, that ended in yeah, a long time ago. I love it. That's great. What are your biggest takeaways from your role in the healthcare system right now? Or like any tips for students that are listening, whether they're in the rehab setting or maybe even thinking about going to med school? I think overall, um, I mean, number one, I say this pretty frequently and that's because, you know, what I do, I have younger people that have really unfortunate diagnoses with cancer and stuff. You really got to enjoy the process on whatever you're doing and how you're pursuing it. Like if you're thinking, I just got to get to point B and I just got to get through whatever school and get A's for the next two years. And then I just got to get through residency. Like if you're not enjoying the time, it's really, it's really taking for granted the time that you do have on earth. And, and, and so I try to dissuade that. So even if that means like being okay with like not being prepared on 12 out of 12 chapters, but at least that six weeks of your life, like you took some part of it to enjoy and to remember why you have fulfillment and stuff. It's just vitally important. And again, I'm biased because I, I have young patients pass on me and, and I myself, you know, I, I see it firsthand, but you got to enjoy the process. That's number one. Number two, um, uh, find the reward and fulfillment during your schooling years, like in the little things, like teach your family members and your friends and stuff. Like when they have questions, you'll, if you enjoy that and that's why you're in it, you'll get that fulfillment early. You don't have to be all the way, you know, practicing um, to start knowing if that's something that fulfills you. And if it doesn't, like, that's okay. You know, and I have a lot of people say, well, how do you, how do I get motivated to study for STAT because, or for MCAT, I just don't have that motivation. This and that. And I'm like, well, sometimes like maybe we just need to think like, is this what I'm motivated to do? And, and I say that not to say like, 
you quote unquote can't do it. It just means that you may be really badass at something else that really does just inspire you and that you mean well, and you can still have a tangent to that on enabling somebody or something in a different capacity. So like, it's, it's never a failure if you're, if you're not motivated and you think you want to step back and seek out something that does inspire you that much just might mean that you're just going to be exceptional at something. Um, so that's an important reevaluation to make. And then unfortunately, you know, realize that with whatever you do, it's going to come with frustrations from the system. And I remember I kept hearing that like healthcare system and policy and insurance, I, like it, it makes practicing difficult. And I just was like, what the, what does that mean? I was like, I have no idea what that means. And what it means is you're going to see injustices. You're going to see people that came in a stage four that didn't have to be because they were a product of, you know, having Medicaid or, or race or whatever it was. And that's going to be very visible, but then you're going to have patients you can't treat because insurance is taking too long. And now they're, you know, getting sick to the point they can't be treated all because of their insurance, you know, whatever. And then you're gonna have other people that you're making really good gains in physical rehab and you're so excited and y'all are high-fiving saying by Christmas, I'm going to have you walk in into the bathroom. And then all of a sudden they don't, they can't show up again because of something that happened in healthcare. So those things are very hard. Um, uh, so be prepared for that unless you're, callous those things are probably gonna hurt and then also when a patient family's crying and you want to be able to talk to them more like to help them after the rehab session's over or whatever you're going to be probably in a position including even me in private practice every now and you're going to just you just can't sometimes or you do and it's time less from your kids and when you get home and then but if you make a habit of that your kids get less of you so the system is built to where you don't have the luxury of usually it's tight spaces, tight intervals and when your next appointment is and stuff. So just realize it takes a lot of kind of psychological resolve and security, um, which obviously they give you no exposure to or training during schooling, you know. I think those last two points were a great, great little ending to this. And I just kind of want to add to that too, because I mean, I agree, we don't get taught anything about that in school either. And that was probably the one of the biggest or one of the harshest realities I know I had to face in my first year out because the platform that I have is a huge advocacy platform, whether it's for students or new grads, and I'm trying to help everybody kind of in this process. And I just feel like I personally have like a more of an advocating type of personality. So being in the hospital setting, I was like, what do you mean this patient can't go to inpatient rehab? Who do I have to call? Who do I have to chase? And they're like, I don't know. It's insurance. I'm like, what do you mean it's insurance? And it's just like, barrier after barrier after barrier when patients like really could benefit from whether it's inpatient rehab or some other type of medical component to you know impact their quality of life and it's like one of those things where you just have to every day try your best to help in that time that you have allowed and hope that they can make enough progress in that moment to not face like such a barrier when they leave the hospital in this like kind of example um but yeah, I, just to add on to that, there's such a huge problem with their healthcare system. But I think it's also, um, you know, coming from just the strict PT world, uh, we have such cuts in outpatient settings. And I know, like, we all harp on it so much. And it's like, to hear it also from another type of medical professional, I think is not heartwarming. That's not the right word. But just like, to know that we're all kind of, yeah, we're all going validating. Yeah, yeah, validating. I like that word better. Just we're all kind of being impacted by it. Um, but it just kind of shows just how much more aware or more impactful we need to be in like the time that we have allowed. Yeah, I, you nailed it. And and I th- I've never said this on a podcast or anything that I've spoken on, but 
I hesitate, but I mean, I, I do think, I don't know that the healthcare system and that exists today is necessarily like means well, as far as like health, I think obviously it's bottom dollar, it's a business that doesn't mean everyone associated with it is bottom dollar or business. And I think that makes more of a responsibility of us as parts of the, of an imperfect system to balance that other side out with compassion and commitment and care. And um, it is what it is like. And I think I get a lot of that on TikTok. It's like, well, the cancer world isn't that. I'm like, I agree with you. I understand that farm companies are for profit and I, I get all that. And I'm having to navigate those. I'm having to know what studies are legitimate or is it so marginal, but it's such a big cost that it's almost a money grab. I'm not going to do that. You know, it takes me dancing, but, but all of us as individuals, as people that aren't, you know, that the actual system, but we're just players in the system. We can balance that with compassion and care. And I think when people can, um, under like accept the imperfection of the system, but say like these, we're, we're all doing the best we can, hopefully. And if you're not shame on you, but if you are, you know, then, then we just deliver the best healthcare within the confines that we, that exist today. Exactly. Mic drop. I love it. <laughs> All right. Um, where can people find you if they have questions, want to slide into your DMs, want to continue a discussion about anything? Yeah, it's, uh, it's the same thing on Insta and TikTok. It's the Onc Doc. It's T-H-E-O-N-C-D-O-C. Um, and yeah, I'm on both of those mediums and a lot of times I'll do, not a lot of times I did it once, but it was really pretty successful on a, a Q and a on my story on Instagram and just y'all can ask and, you know, get exposure on what you're doing when I can reply that. And, and yeah. Perfect. Alrighty. You guys have heard it here first. That was Dr. Sanjay Janesha. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate you. Oh, I appreciate you so much and what you're doing. I hope we keep in touch. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the All Things Physical Therapy podcast. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe to stay updated on new episodes. You can find more episodes like these on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And to stay up to date, follow dpt.steph on Instagram or go to www.dptsteph.com.